hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we ask the question, what kind of growth do you want? Exactly, because not all growth is good. Correct. So on episode 57, we had the inestimable, can't say that very easily, but I gave it a shot. <laughs> Paul Jarvis, come on to talk about his book, A Company of One. And the premise of the book is that uh, small is the new big, and that growth for growth's sake is not always a good idea. It sort of seems obvious when you say it out loud, but it does seem to be a, a cultural norm where, you know, grow, 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 we'll figure out how to make money later kind of thing. To me, like, there's a fundamental problem with the word growth in the first place. Like, what does that even mean? What does that word even mean to you? Right. Is it is it money? Is it people? To me personally, it's both money and people. That's how I think of it in terms of, of my stuff. But it could be products. It could be the equivalent of your Q score. You know, how well known you, you and your idea have gotten. I'm thinking of somebody who maybe has a business and then they have a big idea that's a little separate from the business, but but linked. And so it becomes about how do we get that idea known? And it's about that more than profit for the idea. Then all of a sudden, that's important. It's something that you want to look at, and that's growth. Mm. The one that I get most often from people is is employees. That's the, They measure growth and their size as an organization by the number of employees. It drives me a little bit crazy when people refer to their solo consultancy or their small firm as small, you know, when they, it, I'm like, well, small in what way? Like why? Well, it's just me or it's just me and my partner. Or it's just me and my partner uh, and my employee. And I'm like, well, why would you project that into the world and say like small, like measured by what number of employees? Who cares if you deliver a big impact? Why call yourself small? If that's a conscious decision and you want to position yourself against like a giant firm like Deloitte or something, be like, oh, we're not like Deloitte, we're a small firm, we're a boutique or something. And that's like a point of differentiation. Okay, fine. But if you're just saying that because you honestly, most people feels like it's a confidence thing, you know, they put on their website, well, we don't want people to think, you know, that we're actually big. I don't know. It's super weird. This may be a uniquely American phenomenon because I think we do. De define, you know, we say small business, but then we define how many employees we have as almost a, a bragging right. I have five employees. I have 50. I have 100. Right. Yeah, that's the thing, the bragging rights. That's, I feel like that is where this comes from. Yeah. Like my doctor isn't a small doctor. <laughs> He's very tall. <laughs> he actually is. But it's like, it's not a small practice. It depends. It's how you how would you measure it? Number of patients or number of doctors or revenue or profit? You mentioned money earlier, like money is still pretty vague. Is it bottom line? Is it top line? What what is the number that you're thinking about? Which I guess is what, you know, what this, you keep. Yeah, that's I, the only thing that matters at the end of the day is what you keep. A lot of people don't think like that, though. I talk to people who are like, oh, business is booming. I'm finally getting tons of leads. I hired two developers. We're growing like crazy. We've already done double last year's sales. And I'm like, yeah, but you already tripled your expenses. Oh, yeah, you're right. I don't think it's automatic that people think of profits as the the number that the money number that counts as growth. And in fact, I think there are cases when it isn't the right number. 
And that's the point of this episode. It's like, what is the thing that you are measuring to gauge? Here's a word I like better than growth, progress. So it's oh, interesting, right? Because it's not a size thing. It's a motion thing. Yeah. You mentioned something. I think you said Q score. What's that? A Q score. Well, it's it's something that they've historically used with celebrities. And so when you want to cast a celebrity in a commercial for your product, you look at their Q score. A high Q score means that a lot of people like them. A low Q score, it's also name recognition. It's a like and a name recognition. So the higher the Q score, the more well-known and theoretically well-liked you are. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's not something we use in business per se, but it's sort of the outcome of branding, if you think about it, is how well-known are you, but in this case, to the people who matter to your business versus the population as a whole. Right. This gets into like objective strategy and tactics, which is something I have to explain to a lot of people. And in fact, it was something that was completely opaque to me until relatively recently. I hear people all the time interchange the word strategy and tactics, and they're not the same thing. So just quick crash course here, just in case the dear listeners like I was maybe three years ago, you have an objective, you know what that is, that's your goal, that's uh, some thing that you're trying to achieve. And they're like, two dozen ways that you could possibly get there. I'm oversimplifying. You want to pick one of those ways. That's your overall strategy for achieving that objective. And then you can start thinking about tactics that are appropriate for that strategy. Sort of the purpose of the strategy in the middle of the objective and the tactics is to ensure that your tactics aren't fighting against each other. So you're doing, you're doing one sort of like tactical, uh, you're engaging in some tactical activity and you're engaging in a different one and they're like fighting or cannibalizing each other or pulling you in two different directions. So the strategy in the middle is sort of like a litmus test for what to say no to. It's, it helps you determine what is an opportunity and what is a distraction. So put it another way, it, it helps you know what to say no to. If you don't have a strategy and certainly if you don't have an objective, then there's nothing to measure. You know, you can't measure progress because you're not going anywhere. You're just going one inch in every direction. So at the end of the year, you're like, oh, man, I felt like I had a really busy year, but I kind of feel like I'm where I started no matter what I measure. The painful thing here is for most people that I talk to is picking something where they don't, <laughs> right? Because they were like, well, yeah. but everything's an opportunity. I don't want to like, I don't want to like not explore any opportunity. And I'm like, well, have fun never sleeping again. You yeah. know, it's too, there's to too many opportunities, right? And if you're going to choose, which you kind of have to, if you don't choose, someone will choose for you because you can't do everything that comes across your bow, then you're rudderless. You're just like flailing around with no clear direction. I mean, it makes sense when you say it, but I, I see a lot of people in practice, they're too scared to say no to any kind of opportunity and they have no way to judge which ones they should take and which ones they should leave. So I suppose it starts off like knowing, knowing what kind of growth you want or what kind of progress you want to make is sort I mean, it kind of starts with setting an objective and then deciding how you want to achieve it. And I think these things, you know, have a life of their own too. I mean, I, I think about when I started my first business, you know, I co-founded it with a partner and we grew that over six years. And then we got to this point, it was an inflection point. And I literally sat back and said, okay, what do we do next? We were what I would call a boutique and we were making forward progress as you would describe it by getting more clients, more bottom line revenue, more consultants. 
but I wasn't happy anymore. And so I sat back and said, all right, what do we have to do? And I realized in order to get to the next level, we had to invest a considerable amount of money over and above what we had already invested. And I I sat there and said, okay, I have to invest more money to do more of what I don't like because I'd become basically a manager and leader of the company versus doing the work. So I have to invest more to do more of what I don't like. This is wrong. This is not forward progress. And that was the moment when I started to think about selling. And ultimately, we did sell uh, to Arthur Anderson. But it was that process of thinking about the business related to what it is that you want, how well your talents and passions are being used in the business. And in my case, I was so excited to start a business I'd wanted to run a business my whole life. And here I was for six years, you know, CEO of this growing company that got a lot of visibility, you know, in Chicago at the time. It was exciting. It fed my ego. And then I got to the point where I said, this isn't working for me. What's not working? And the definition of forward progress changed. I I think that's totally fair, like that your objective will change over time or you'll have like a, a particular objective and either achieve it or admit defeat and change to a different, like it doesn't have to be your be all end all purpose of your life. But if you're going to invest, you know, weeks and weeks and months and years of your time into something, it'd be kind of nice to know what you're trying to do, at least have some hazy vision of what mountaintop you're trying to get to and not trying to get to all of them at the same time. I want to come back to this, but just to not let what the external world sees drive you if it's not good for you. You said, you know, you grew it for six years. That I think it was an exact quote. Mm-hmm. What were the things you were measuring at the time? I think you said employee count. Employee count. And we had three different categories of, we had employees and contractors. We had three different categories. So core group of employees, I measured by that growth. I measured by the types of services we could offer with our contractor community. Those were people that we couldn't keep busy all the time, but that were they were generally specialists in an area and we would bring them in as needed. They might only work with us once a year on a project. For us, one of the things we did as a group is we usually sat down once a year at the end of the year and we talked about what we really liked in the last year about the business and what we didn't like. And so it was sort of a, I wouldn't even call it kumbaya. It was a, it was a group of women. And we, we just all felt like we worked really hard and we wanted to enjoy the work. I looked at it in my job as founding and running this company as I wanted people to do the things that they were good at and that they loved. So at the end of the year, everybody would give a number, a happiness number. And that was part of how we we ranked the company. And for the life of me, I can't remember the system we use. I can't remember. I know it was a number system. I can't remember what what like I think it was one to one to ten. I think it was, but I'm not sure. But we ranked that, and that was something that I counted. Mm, interesting. In that six years, do you, were you measuring the right things? And then you got to a size where things, the inflection point, changed things, or if you were going to do it over again you know, like the dear listener, would you have measured something else in that? Actually, yeah, I wouldn't have measured something else. Um, For me, it was it was the size, because what happened is we got to a size where I needed a dedicated salesperson to keep growing and keep feeding the growing number of people and getting a salesperson meant I had to manage that person. I didn't want to do that. So why not stop growing? 
it didn't feel like an option. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean, I'm being perfectly honest. It, it, so I, I'm thinking back, it did not feel like an option because, well, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to justify it. It's yeah, just, it's, it's too- a time. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it didn't feel like an option to me. And by selling it, it actually accomplished a whole lot of good things because the people wanted to keep working. I didn't want to like shut it down. So everybody was offered a job in the new organization. Everybody got a piece of the pie of the sales price. So in the long run, I think it worked out the the way that it was supposed to. But yeah, it would be interesting. I don't know if I were facing that situation now, if I would have chosen the same outcome. Right. So just to kind of devil's advocate, sort of like talk about the counter argument to my usual soapbox on this. I interviewed um, a guy named John Warlow recently on Ditching Hourly, and his whole shtick is about building a business that you can sell. He has a, a really popular book called Built to Sell. If you are someone who is that kind of an entrepreneur, like someone who creates a business to f- basically a flipper or, or buys a business to flip it, then you are absolutely going to measure your progress or call it growth in a lot of ways that are very different from the way I measure it or maybe you measure it now. It's kind of like if you're going to flip a house, you're going to decorate it or you're going to do repairs much differently than you would if you were going to live there. Like our neighbors bought a house that somebody flipped like right before it and they did a bunch of stuff that looked really good in the pictures on the realtor website and looked pretty good when you walked <laughs> through the house. But what do you know? About a year later, stuff started falling apart. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's not the perfect metaphor, perfect analogy, but you are going to do things differently because there's a different motivation. So I would tend to think that probably a lot of people listening to this show aren't looking to, I suppose this is kind of harsh, but I usually say, you know, fatten up the pig for slaughter, which is, I'm like, (laughs) well, I I don't like that model. You know why I don't like that model? And this is just a personal thing is because it makes me feel like you're lying to your customers the whole time. Like if you know that you are just going to sell this business and you want to ride off into the sunset galloping on a pile of money. But all along, you've been saying to your customers like, oh, you know, this is bad. This is best, 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 best. We're the best for these reasons. And then you're like, see ya. Yeah. I I just cannot sleep at night with that. I mean, I'm not saying it's not unethical. I'm not saying that. I just can't do that. It's like, Mm -hmm. I can't be that person that's just like, this is the best thing ever. And I'm out of here. Yeah. No, I, I get that. It's a different mindset. Right. Again, not unethical. It's If that's your thing, I have no problem with that. I just can't do it. For me, growth is all about funding the mission. If I'm growing, it means that my, um, you know, effective hourly rate is going up, if you will. So it's like my flywheel is picking up speed. When I see things like an increased number of sales of something that has been released for a long time. And I see that line slowly but steadily trending upward for something that doesn't create any incremental cost. I'm like, okay, that's growth. Like that, to me, that feels like growth. That's like an annuity, you know, like, uh, mm-hmm. like uh, that sort of thing. So I'm like, all right, how do I contribute more things to that? Because it, it does two things at the same time. It spreads a message that I think is worth hearing to a larger and larger audience And it gives me more resources to keep doing it. So if your goal, probably listeners of a show like this, the goal is going to be kind of similar to ours, where it's like we've got this message and we want to spread it, then to me, measuring it is 
plain and simple, increased profit, because that's the sign that it's sustaining. Right. But I like the way that you said it's growth is funding the mission. Maybe that needs to be our new definition of growth as we talk about it on the show, because I go back and, and we've talked so much about the mission, the big idea, because every one of us has something and we may not always have it articulated exactly right yet, but we have this idea that we want to get out there, that we want to share. And it is a mission. It's fundamental. And it's why we do what we do. And you can't do it if you're not getting paid. You can't do it if you're not getting paid well for your time. You can't do it if you're not getting more opportunities to share your idea or to deepen the idea with the people who've already experienced it. Yeah, 100%. It's like it's like a scientist being able to fund their research. It's like if you want to keep drilling down that hole, you can't just eat your findings. <laughs> I suppose it depends on the science. <laughs> well, you must be hungry today between the pig I am. and eating. I didn't yeah. eat breakfast. You're right. It's totally true. <laughs> and we started early today and I did not eat breakfast. So guilty as charged. <laughs> to me, that's the bottom line. To me, the number of employees is irrelevant. Like, I don't feel like the best use of my time is managing other people. So like hiring for me is there's no ego in it. It's, it's very, it feels very risky to me because it feels like it threatens my ability to actually do the part that I'm good at or the part that I feel good at of, of this job. So spending time doing like one-on-ones, which I, you know, I think are an important part of an employee employer relationship. It just feels like a complete waste of time to me. So I definitely fall very much in Paul's category of having contractors who are not cheap, but you don't have to manage. He was preaching to the choir for me. You know, he talked about using highly seasoned people and I feel the same way. I mean, my team, every one of them could go out on their own and do their own thing with other people and be amazingly successful. You can't teach what you don't know. So I don't want to work with somebody like say an accountant who's been doing it for three or four years. It's not enough for me because I don't know what I don't know. I can't teach them that. And I don't want to. I don't want to teach them that. I want them to teach me. So I want people who are working with me on a contractor basis, who are seasoned and who aren't just yes people. Oh, that's so smart. What a good idea. (laughs) I don't want to hear that. I want to hear like my VA will say, where did you come up with that idea? No. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> and Or they come to me with an idea. I mean, I love that because I'm not thinking about their area of expertise. I'm not thinking about a legal angle or a tax angle or an administrative angle. I want somebody who cares about my business, too, to come to me with that. Yeah, absolutely agree. It's probably a wrong message for the listener, but I talk to people all the time who are like, you're like, oh, there, there are no good clients on Fiverr. <laughs> they're there. Or, like, or they think they think there are no good clients in the world. And I'm like, well, where do you get them from? Like Fiverr. I'm like, well, good clients don't hang out on Fiverr. And what we're describing here is like, look, if you want to be disappointed with the results or you're just kind of R&Ding an idea, then fine. Just pay bare minimum for somebody who's just learning how to do this stuff. But there are definitely people out there you know, like us, who are willing to pay more money to get someone who actually is going to 
first of all, obviously knows what they're doing, but is also going to bring their own ideas, is going to push back, are going to give you honest feedback. All that stuff is super valuable, but that's a, a little bit of a tangent. No, but I, I like that you had one of your email lists and you were talking about finding clients in Fiverr and Craigslist. And, and I think what happens is, is if you allow yourself to go there, you start to think the whole world is like that. And all of a sudden, you, you don't know how to value yourself and your services. You, you expect to be beaten down on price, on process. I mean, that's not a way to create a winning business. You got to get out of there. Right. Yeah. Eventually, it infects your whole worldview. Oh, it does. Yeah. Are there other ways that people measure growth that you've come across? I mean, certainly employees is a big one. Uh, Revenue is another big one. I think that's a little bit of a red herring. I'd I'd rather people look at profits, but okay. Depends on what you're trying to do. Number of clients I've got, and it's usually financial advisors. They look at that because their model is... I mean, they'll look at the assets that they manage. That's an industry thing that they look at. But the number of clients is a proxy for that. They want to see typically, and it depends on the model, whether it's a solo or a group practice of some sort, but they typically want to see client growth. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you work with people who count things like social media followers or subscribers, those sorts of things as as meaningful growth and like that's the thing that drives them? We count them. I wouldn't say we consider them huge metrics of success. It's, you know, when you're doing marketing and branding, those numbers help to tell you who you're theoretically reaching, but we don't really know. I mean, yeah, so you have 100,000 Twitter followers, but what's the engagement level? Um, Have they bought anything from you? Have they come onto your list? I mean, it's not really a good number. It is a metric that most people track, but it's not, I don't think it's something they they use to decide that they've had a good year. If revenue's down um, and and you say, oh, but I got an extra 1,000 Twitter followers, you know, it just doesn't (laughs) do it. Yeah, I I do hang out with a lot of people who make quite a bit of money off their mailing lists and they they see the number of subscribers as a meaningful leading indicator they're like get moody if they get a lot of unsubscribes and stuff like that i try really hard to resist that because i've talked to people who have a quarter of a million people on their mailing list and can't figure out how to make a living or you know you see these <laughs> youtube youtubers that have millions of subscribers and they're complaining about like, oh, and I I have to work at a Trader Joe's because I can't make ends meet with, you know, whatever. I think you have to be a little bit careful about it because like you pointed out, you don't know who those people are. And like, there's a big distinction. There can be a big swing in, I don't want to say, I mean, quality is not quite the right word, but engagement, I guess, where there are a ton of, you've got a ton of subscribers or and they're all bots or they're all uh, the wrong kind of people you know somebody shared your stuff in some place that maybe takes the message in the wrong way or something or you're on tv for some reason and i oh this actually happened to me so i was on tv in 2011 i was on tv a lot and and i got all of these like all of these twitter followers and all of these like facebook uh whatever you call it whatever it is on facebook there was a thing called a brand page or something back then. It was kind of like followers anyway, like tens of thousands, but they sort of came across me in the wrong way. (laughs) You know what I mean? So they weren't like from a business perspective. I mean, it was very interesting. It was cool, 
But from a business perspective, it was, I mean, it didn't turn into one cent, like not one penny. So those are, I, I guess is a long way of saying that you probably shouldn't put too much weight on those sorts of numbers because they're just really, really hard to judge. Well, there's an ego component that none of us likes to really admit to. I mean, I think I've shared the story about when when my firm was profiled in the Wall Street Journal and I was beyond excited. I mean, we made the front page and it was the middle, but we made the front page. It was so exciting. It, it was nothing. I, I got no, no business out of it. I got a few. Oh, that was great. What I got instead was something like 200 different requests for jobs. <laughs> from people all over exactly. the country and they kept syndicating the articles so like one day it would be Cleveland another day it would be Portland you know and I get all these inquiries so it created more work for me it was it turned out to be a completely ego thing somehow in my head I equated that with that's going to bring us more clients but it, it just was great for my ego but nothing else so it's that it's like we have to kind of separate from that. And I think social media makes it harder because everybody sees your count. Well, hey, I have 200,000 followers. You only have 150. So I just think we need to not feel bad about that and rather just really focus on good growth, good growth for you, because good growth for Jonathan might not be good growth for Rochelle. It's, it's good growth for you. I've got one client who Literally in LinkedIn, he doesn't accept random invites, but he will reach out to them and say, okay, uh, I would like to get to know you better. Can we have a brief conversation? And if they do, then they've connected. And he always does them some kind of a favor. It's a small favor. It might be a connection. Um, one time he got somebody a column in one of the publications that he also writes for. But by doing that, he's got, it's not a huge group, it's maybe 3,000 people on LinkedIn, but he has a personal connection with every last one of those people. And he's an introvert. He's an introvert, but it's, it's because it's just a little snippet of time with each one, and he doesn't do it with everybody. He doesn't do it with the, what do they call them, lions on LinkedIn, the people that are open networkers. He doesn't do it with them. But with with real people who look like they have, you know, a, a real job or a real business, he does it, makes time for it every week. We're spiraling into a social media episode. We should probably put, do on <laughs> social media strategy, growth hacking strategies on social media. <laughs> I'm pretty but sure it, that's been done to death, but. Yeah. But but going back to the title, I guess, of this or the concept is, you know, what kind of growth do you want? And yes, social media growth is great, but only if it serves your purpose. Just to have it hanging out there as a number is not meaningful. Yeah. Vanity metric. Yeah. Yeah. You got to watch out for those because you can feel like you can feel like you're making some kind of progress. But then at the end of the day or at the end of the year, your happiness number is a one and the amount of money you kept is lower. And the amount of hours you worked is a higher. So as we approach the end of the year, New Year's resolutions and whatnot, it's a great time to think about that and look back and say, am I better off? And what does that even mean? Like, how do I figure out what, I'm what I should look at to decide if I'm better off? Yeah. And you might have an investment year, too. I mean, let's not forget about that. I mean, not, it's not a, a, a straight up trajectory. There will be years where you say, uh, I'm going to invest in building this, whatever it is, 
that you've tested ahead of time to make sure <laughs> right. you have an audience for. Right. But um, yeah, you're going to invest in that, in some content, or you're going to invest in, in a particular client project in learning a new skill or applying a new skill. So you'll have those things, but you have to look at them as investments towards your growth, funding the mission, forward progress. Excellent. Do we leave any stone unturned? Oh, how could we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to recap that, I guess it's it's really like know what your objective is, where you're trying to go, how are you going to measure it, watch out for vanity metrics that maybe make you feel good in the moment, but really they're a sugar high and at the end of the year you're starving. And it's probably going to be different for everyone. I mean, there's a right way for me, guaranteed, but that's definitely not the right way for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I think the key is to be aware of of the inflection points for your business and where you're at right now, because you might be early on in your business, earlier in your career, you might be advanced in your career, but just starting the business and you're, you're finding your way on which things you really want to invest in to fuel your growth for the future. Perfect. All right. It's probably a good place to leave it. Okay. That's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye.